0: And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Like mental memory here. And I no, I'm not doing this. (laughs) I'm I'm not doing this. I, 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 I
1: I just have to put down for posterity that I cannot imagine a thing I want less for my bidet than to mist my ass like that's that's against <laughs> the purpose of the thing
2: that? that's not doing anything for anyone
1: exactly it's not fixing any problems <laughs>
0: what if you're what if you're ha- you had a, a rough night out and you're you're puking in the toilet and you need to clean yourself up sure go for uh, the gargle with the bidet but that's that's you don't want that that's gonna shoot down your throat it hits your little larynx you know no you don't want that so you my uh, little larynx use the mist, use the mist.
2: I've been Larynx, told my, my, my lyrics life. is perfectly average. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone says so.
1: Size does not matter. Uh, okay. Thank Just you very much process. for listening to Try Love. Oh my god. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable <laughs> podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met <laughs> at the Try Cinema in Minneapolis, <laughs> Minnesota. My Rushing name is Jason. It. You can go to TryLove. You can go to Trylon. to get tickets go to, to any show. <sighs> This is we're slowly turning into
0: a show where we just torture our producer. Slowly.
1: <laughs> yeah, is that
2: slowly turning into that? I
0: you feel know, like it's been you know that for
1: who's you know we the sound. You know whose name the SoundCloud is billed to? Be careful there, guys. Uh, <laughs> you can find tickets to any movie that shows at the Trilon at Trilon.org. Not this one, though, because we're recording late. Uh, you can find our podcast at Trilove Podcast on Twitter, and you can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Uh, I am Jason, and I am about five minutes till nine in Paris, and you can find me at Nintendoofus.
3: I'm Cody Narvison, currently in the first year of forever, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH.
2: I literally always forget that we're going to do this bit every single time, and we've been doing it for weeks now, uh, but I'm still going to do my best because no one is just <laughs> anything, uh, but I am just Harry Mack, and you can find me at Shtaki Harry.
0: Uh, I also forget about this bit Uh so we're like we're like fifty percent on this bit, but I am stranded in Porvenir here, and, venere, and uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please.
1: Excellent. Everybody's doing this swimmingly. Uh, our movie for today is Sorcerer, nineteen seventy seven film in the ongoing William Friedkin series, playing at the Trilon, and I think Aaron is going to tell us a little bit about what this movie is actually about.
0: Yeah, Sorcerer, nineteen seventy seven, William Friedkin. Uh, it's an adaptation of, whew, okay, uh, Josh. Is how you pronounce that? Uh George's, but French is Josh. Hmm. Uh Josh Arnaud's novel, uh The Wages of Fear. Uh it is the second adaptation of The Wages of Fear. Um some have considered uh Sorcerer a remake of the film of the same name, the French film from the nineteen fifties. Uh Freakin does dispute this. Um, summary let's go okay uh an irish american a frenchman a mexican and a palestinian go on the vacation of their lives to sunny latin america the weather is be- the weather is beautiful and the alcohol is flowing but the trip turns out to be more than they can handle and all they want is to go home when a cross-country road trip quickly turns from bad to worse
2: uh, <laughs> uh, no okay no okay, okay
0: uh, no uh, This this Uh, movie mainly stars uh, Roy Scheider as Jackie Scanlon. He is one of a group of four men stuck in the remote Latin American village of Porvenir. They all have fled there trying to escape various elements of their past. Um, they are given the opportunity to leave if they complete a job for a local uh, American oil company uh, to transport several incredibly dangerous and unstable crates of dynamite 200 miles across the country. Um, Sars Roy Scheider as Jackie Scanlon, uh, Bruno Kremer-, Kremer as Victor Manson, uh, Francisco Rabal as Nilo and Amadou as um, It was originally uh, critically panned and commercially uh, very unsuccessful, but Sorcerer is now considered a cult classic. My Thank you, Aaron.
2: Did not go over well. All right. Uh, I, I thought it, I thought it to, was pretty funny.
1: I'm going to strike it from the record, but yeah, uh, I'm not going to remove it from the audio. I'm just going to bleep it out like every individual word. But. Well, I'll give a quick run of what I thought about this movie and then hand off to you guys as I'm trying to impose some structure onto this podcast. Uh, I found this a very good movie. It's interesting to know that it was critically panned at the time because I would have assumed that it would have been one of those movies that came out that critics loved, but that audiences just didn't go see because it's a slog. Uh, It was another Friedkin in the morning watch for me, which I, again, two movies in heavily recommend, and I plan to watch most of the films that we're going to watch as part of this series that way, uh, because it gave me the whole day to think about it and stew on how rapidly mad this movie becomes uh, around the midway point. Um, I really enjoy this. I, uh, I I will probably never stop thinking, thinking about it, um, and I'm going to watch it again uh, before long. Cody.
3: Nice. Uh, so I hadn't seen Sorcerer prior to last night. Um, that'll be the case for me for any other Friedkin movie uh, that we end up talking about—that's part of the trilon's current uh, Friedkin theme. Um, I say that like we don't know what our upcoming release schedule will be, um, but we do actually have our shit together in that regard. So look out, twenty twenty-one. Here we Also, come. it's
2: it's just the one other movie, right?
3: Uh, who knows, right? Got to got to keep the people in suspense. Maybe, probably. Um, all, all, all three of them. So I maybe had uh, some wild expression, uh, expectations rather coming into this. Um, it, by, by and large, they were met. Um, this movie rules. Um, because the, the premise uh, just sounded really fascinating to me. It struck me in a way that made me excited to eventually watch it and also made me curious about different things. Um, like I was very interested in how it would be paced and it ended up doing the thing i love which is employing kind of what i think is like the willy wonka structure of like half the movie is going to take place uh before we actually step foot inside oh my god
2: i was gonna call that the jaws effect but it's the same effect we're talking yeah i was totally gonna talk about that
3: yeah, the exact same thing, um, for sure. And, you know, in this case, we spent about half the movie building up our, our main four fellas. Uh, that's not necessarily an automatic win um, in cases where this structure, the uh, Willy Wonka structure, WWS for short, uh, is is being utilized. Um, but it worked for me here in part because we're also doing other uh, stuff with that time, Um what I kept coming back to, and I don't even know if this makes sense, uh, was a sort of tonal funnel. Um, what, I mean, what I mean by that is the first act or act and a half were following these uh, these stories of these four men, seeing them fall from their previous statuses and ending up in the same part of Latin America. And in that time, there there felt to be a wider variety of images and sounds and scenes that almost felt better suited to a different movie, or rather the four other movies that these men would have belonged to in their old lives. Um, you know, having Victor Manzone's partner, Pascal, Pascal, um, that guy, not only killing himself in his car, but also attaching like a plucky Moonrise Kingdom-esque musical cue to images of that bloody car, um, that, uh, or, you know, the surprise car accident we get in Jackie Scanlon's story, which is simultaneously horrific and also the most hilarious fuck up catastrophe you could ever imagine for that situation. Um, and you know, it, so we get those four different personalities get four very different backstories that eventually get distilled uh into kind of the one thing as we prepare for this journey of theirs you know their personalities uh as characters become pretty muted um they mutate and they even become kind of consolidated all while physically they're all almost literally walking across the same tightrope for 200 miles um you know, that they're taking this journey for. Um, all the wild circumstances that brought everyone there, all the wild things that they used to be are exchanged for a singular path that calls for less narrative flamboyance and less distinct characters, um, which we might get into. Uh, and that all that stuff really works for me. And uh, really quick, the technical work is also pretty well complementary to all of this. The editing choices don't create jump scares, but they create sort of this different thing where moments in which deviations from this like trajectory, this same funneled path that everybody is on, are made. They're made obvious to the viewer, and they're, I, I felt moments where it was physically painful for me to watch them do things. Um, and the scale and the spectacle uh, are other things that I feel like Sorcerer is most remembered for. And uh, to me, those helped illustrate the heartbreaking discrepancy between like how easy it is for these men to fall and how difficult, or maybe more appropriately, how impossible it was for them to climb back uh, you know, into it um where they where they once were and i think that will also play into what i remember most from this movie and i'm excited to hear what y'all will take away from it too
2: yeah uh cody said a lot of really good things there um I'll agree with Jason. First of all, um, I think that this movie whips ass um, and I'm surprised that it was not critically well-received. Although I think that in some ways that sort of makes sense because I had some pacing issues with it. I think it's a surprisingly challenging movie and a surprisingly understated movie, which is, I say it's surprising and sort of ironic because it's a movie about driving a truck full of explosives and trying to make sure that they don't explode which does not sound like a particularly understated movie and in a lot of ways it's not right it's big and bombastic and brash there's an amazing tangerine dream score um and sort of like apocalypse now vibes almost but um i mean it's sort of understated and challenging in the sense that i think it's it's a very visual work it's it's like a film in the true sense where like it's doing a lot of its characterization and a lot of its thematic um, frameworking via visual images primarily or exclusively as opposed to um, a lot of work within the script or a lot of work within um, dialogue. There are no monologues in this, right? There's maybe one characterizing moment and then, spoilers, those characters blow up. Um, and so I, my relationship with this movie sort of evolved. I, like Cody, had pretty great expectations of it. I had pretty great expectations of it being an anti-capitalist movie. I had pretty great expectations of it being like a really smart thriller uh, from the Friedkinness of it and from its own reputation. I thought it was really going to be. weirdly highbrow because that's sort of the reputation it enjoys it it came out the same day as star wars and it was sort of set up as this sort of oppositional force um to star Wars where star Wars represented like mass media and like popular entertainment and sorcerer was supposed to be some sort of like mythic alternative to that, which is a really weird framing for this movie to have and really reductive, but, um, sort of the history of it a little bit, I guess. Um, but that being said, I think that I really want to watch this movie again, like Jason does, because I feel like I fully understood it only by the last scene. And I really, really thought it was something exceptional um by the last scene but i my feelings toward it and my enjoyment of it were not uniform right i think particularly in the first act i was having a little bit of trouble following and i couldn't understand why they were making the decisions they were making in some cases um like i said i think there's a lot of understatement um not in a bad way but just in a in a way um and so it's it's a really fun movie to watch because you really grow to understand it in real time in a way that i don't think is necessarily true of a lot of movies um like this is a weird comparison, but another really great Tangerine Dream soundtrack is in the movie Thief. And that's sort of almost the exact opposite of this movie thematic or not thematically, but in terms of pacing where there is one really big monologue at the beginning of Thief at like the end of the first act. And you pretty much know exactly what the movie is from then on. And you don't, there aren't a ton of big surprises and like, that's also a great movie, uh, but it's just like, Compared to that, this is a movie that you really need every scene to understand what the movie is doing, in my opinion, right down to that final scene, the heartbreaking ending here. And so it was really interesting to take in a movie that way.
0: Yeah, I um, I, I was actually kind of the main thing that I've been thinking about following my watch of the movie uh, was actually some of the stuff that you touched on, which was the uh, kind of history behind this movie. Um, and, and, and you did, you mentioned that, I, I think this movie often gets kind of the history of this movie gets kind of shortcutted in a very weird way where it, yeah. it gets brought up that, you know, Star Wars came out alongside it, um, absolutely trounced it. I think that the, the history of that kind of stuff from like a, uh, film history standpoint or a box office standpoint is kind of maybe a little more complicated, but I do think there is something weirdly symbolic about that. Um, Friedkin was a director who, Uh, is kind of considered uh, a director who's very new Hollywood, right? Who is uh, a director alongside like Carpenter and even people like Spielberg uh, and George Lucas, kind of young directors in the 70s and 80s who were doing really exciting, wild stuff as a lot of technological advancements were coming along as well. Um, And I like a lot of Friedkin's stuff that I've seen, uh, but I do think it's kind of interesting specifically with this film. This is a big blockbuster with a lot of big practical effects, Uh, That is slightly highbrow, certainly more highbrow than something like Star Wars. Um, And there's something very interesting uh, and like symbolic in the way that this like was was beaten by Star Wars in the box office. I'm very Uh, interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. Star's the lead of Jaws. Right. Um, Someone who Friedkin had worked with uh, previously on French Connection. Um, And I I don't know. I, I kind of have this 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 path mapped out between something like Jaws and Star Wars and Blockbuster filmmaking right now. And it feels like this is kind of a uh where Star Wars kind of fits in uh on that trajectory, this movie feels like it's kind of out of place of it, that it doesn't really fit in with current blockbuster filmmaking in any way. Um and I don't know. I I just keep thinking of it in that manner and that there was a bunch of like tours or you know, young filmmakers tours with scare quotes around it because I don't want to get into that argument who are doing all this really exciting stuff, and it's kind of led to where things are today, which uh, I'm a bit of a grump about, maybe. Um, but I think that watching this, it, it's very similar to something like The Thing, where I just think the practical effects are so amazing. Um, I'm so like amazed at the 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 chances that this movie is taking uh, and the risks that it's going for. And it's like such a shame that it was like a blockbuster failure and a critical success. And I just can't stop thinking about, is that some, some sort of symbolic uh, uh, I don't know um, end of an era in a weird way.
2: Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, It's funny. Like this is an oversimplification obviously, but I kept thinking about this movie in terms of like what a, like, template for the dark 70s thriller it is where it's like this it's a it's a 70s blockbuster thriller but it's supposed to be dark and it's supposed to be discomforting both in its um its plot and its characterization but also in its theme right like we're supposed to come away not feeling good at the end of this movie because it's saying something that's scary about humanity and about the way society works and it's like it's it obviously it's 77 so it's not the last of those but it feels like the end of an era in a really significant way uh almost like a spooky way in that it came out at the same time as star wars which represents almost the beginning of something completely alternative to that right where it's like we're we're reaching the end of this era of movies that are supposed to be discomforting and they're supposed to be challenging and they're supposed to be like they're so they're supposed to have a real weight and a real sort of um connection and something to say about the the social and political and um economic conditions that brought them about and that is not necessarily the case of blockbusters after this and again I, i'm not trying to throw star wars under the bus too much but it is interesting right like uh and obviously this is a simplification and all things are different but in the sort of like grand um narrative sense it's it's tempting to make that sort of connection.
0: Yeah, and I, I think the the devil's advocate that I am forced to play because I don't want to be a historical here is that you know e- even today, uh, you know, I think that this movie is in my mind, and I haven't looked up quotes from him about it, but this is uh, like undeniably a massive, massive uh, inspiration for George Miller, like Mad Max: Fury Road. Take straight Has up takes- so many moments out of this film, uh, you know, and it seems like it's such a reference. And that is, I think, generally considered one of the smarter, more impressive, more practical recent blockbusters uh, that that does reference a lot of action films from the 70s and maybe even early 80s. Yeah,
1: even like even from that perspective of like just giving these characters such a like rich well, most of these characters, I guess, that's something that I would like to talk about is how fleshed out or not fleshed out some of these characters are, but giving at least two of our main leads like a very well fleshed out story prior to the actual like movie hitting at like an hour in, that drove home to me just like how strong the basic setup could be, like give, uh, and, and you know, it's it's not new, but giving disparate characters with different motivations and shady backstories, just put them in cars and have them like stress over the same things. Such a simple premise, such a simple concept, just stretched out to its absolute maximum, like usable plot. I really loved how simplistic that was. And what you're saying about Miller and the Mad Max series, and particularly Mad Max Fury Road, a movie that I've seen a couple of times, uh, the way that that also takes just such a simple concept, a gas run, and just enriches it with a whole lot of like great character interplay and uh, world building and story background. I mean, it doesn't need to do it doesn't need to be overly complex in order to be very, very rich to me, this movie.
2: And it, it's so cool to think about that, Jason, because you're right. And like it's so intentional, right? And you can tell it's so intentional on the screen. And then you can read about the making of this movie. There are some really great quotes, even on just the Wikipedia of Sorcerer, uh, about like Friedkin talking about this movie. And he's such a filmmaker's filmmaker, and I, I really like that about him. But like he he's talking about how like like, okay, the original premise of this movie was it was thematic. Like, he had a theme, first of all, that he wanted to express where he's like, I wanted to to create this world where there are a bunch of people who don't trust each other and they're at odds and they hate each other, but they have to cooperate, otherwise Everything's going to explode because that 's how I feel like the world is, and so what did he do? He put a bunch of different guys who hate each other in a truck that 's going <laughs> to explode it 's like it 's brilliant right it 's brilliant to know how direct and how funny it is that that 's how he got from point a to point b like that that 's such an uh not to again use that that scary word, but that 's in such an Artur's like methodology for filmmaking where it was just like. I have this, this idea, this concept I want to communicate and I'm going to find a blockbuster way to do it. And I'm going to do it with this truck and these bunch of scary characters. It's like, it's a, it's a really great, like filmmakers movie, right? It's such an, it's an Artur's like approach. It feels like.
0: Yeah. I, uh, again, not to be like a crank, but I think there is a feeling you get watching this movie where you do kind of regret that, that, the period of films like this has kind of passed. Like there's such a uh, character to this movie. I mean, we talked about how um, ugly, not in a bad way, but how like intentionally ugly, the French connection felt at times. Um, This movie is as grimy as that film, but it's really beautiful. The colors are just like absolutely amazing. It's fucking gorgeous. Not even in the, not even in the, uh, just in the jungle, but at the very beginning um, in the the very first shot uh, in Mexico, where one of the main characters is assassinating someone in, in Veracruz, there's just like, b- vibrantly blue pillars in the lobby of this building. And it there's such like a depth to the way that this is shot. And just, it's so wonderful. And like, when they're in the jungle, like Scheider is just like constantly sweaty. And you can just like feel the sweat coming off him. And there's such like a uh, palpability to it that you just don't get with a lot of blockbuster these days um and part of that's probably because the, the shooting for this was like so long and drawn out and such like a big ordeal um but there you do kind of feel just like bummed out that there aren't more massive you know 25 million dollar failures like this one i guess
1: yeah yeah um harry you said that uh, we don't need to go into it as a point but just the fact that like you can I didn't research this film to the extent that a couple of the others on the podcast seem to have, but the fact that, like, when I'm watching a movie like this, that's you know fairly dense, and uh, you know any re- any movie really, I wonder sometimes, like, okay, so I'm picking up on like general themes and and like overarching concepts here. Which came first in the creation of this movie? Was it was it like the theme that wanted to be communicated, or was it just a story that was like intended to be thrilling? And it's really interesting to hear that it's like clearly very intentionally one more than the other in this particular case. I mean, obviously we already talked about how Friedkin brought in elements of a previous movie, uh, more or less the plot of that movie, but added sort of a Friedkin, uh, well, not himself, but, you know, as as the writers ended up editing a whole lot of things that worked well with Friedkin's style. So that's interesting to hear that it was more than like a product of let's recreate a movie or reinterpret a movie and more of these are really like strong themes and ideas that we want to that we want to explore and here's a good vehicle for doing it
2: right and you know while i'm being semi a historical or making sort of giant uh claims that i can't back up necessarily with evidence i feel like there's a there's a direct connection to be made between the sort of um the the sadness Aaron, that you're pointing out about how movies like this don't seem to be made anymore and that sort of arturish um earnestness and i i don't you know i'm not a believer in auteur theory but i am a believer in in sort of like the idea that there are even under capitalism um and this is maybe a controversial statement that i i feel differently about at different times but there can be art that is created for art's sake almost primarily right and it's like this is a movie that strikes me as something that was made because friedkin and the people around friedkin really fucking wanted to make it And, like, really wanted to say something about uh, capitalism and what it's like to live with other people and what labor is and what working does to a human being and what working under a corporation or under a sort of, like, wage slavery does to a human being and how reliant we are on one another. Like, all of those things feel like something that needed to be said by artists. As opposed to something that needed to be said to make money for people, which is like, no offense, right? But like, that's how a lot of movies feel, even good movies, right? Like, I like uh, Last Jedi a lot, but like, I am under no fucking illusions that Rian Johnson wanted to make that movie more badly than the studio wanted to make a trillion dollars off of it, right? It's like... Star Wars doesn't get made because people are really, really passionate about it, even though people are really passionate about it. Star Wars gets made because studios want to make trillions of dollars. And then when an artist gets too uppity about actually communicating a vision, you bring in J.J. J. Abrams and you make it palatable for a mass audience so it can make as much money as possible again, right? And so, like, I think that that's that's the connection that I'm drawing is that like this movie feels like a movie that was made by people who actually were interested in what they were saying primarily as opposed to making money primarily, which is good because this movie didn't make any money,
3: which is maybe why these things don't exist anymore. (laughs) That lines up really, really well, man. I uh, would not have expected that we would pivot to last Jedi, but in retrospect, it seems kind of obvious and I'm glad that uh, you went that way, Harry. Um, And, uh, this i i mean you three have all alluded to this uh in some form but just so it doesn't go uh unsaid explicitly the the physical performances of uh Scheider, and i mean honestly all of the drivers um like you need that to sing in order for the latter half of this movie to make any sort yeah. of sense uh like in order for it to to sell period um the uh express the expressiveness of Uh, of them all like and and i like the makeup too. the the wide-eyed you know dirty faces as you know they're crossing rickety bridges um like that like it was all you know i i thought overperformed but then also just like oh this is like adequately what i imagine somebody would be feeling when they're like rolling around in a bomb for however long they're doing it for um roy scheider uh in a swamp hacking blindly at branches is one of the most like humbling, sad things I've ever seen in a movie or anywhere else. Just like knowing that like the road is going more like growing more and more futile at, you know, as they progress. And, you know, I, the, the fact that we're that, you know, it maybe it feels understated uh, or like the performances or, or the movie itself, because there's, you know, the, the acting is, is less, verbal it is more physical in the latter half um and you know that uh, that's a necessity you know obviously i think um and it plays in nicely i think harry to what you were uh alluding to earlier and um you maybe uh saw that you uh had a had a letterbox entry kind of alluding to this too but like the focus on the 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 bodies the physicality of this men, like that is what we're left with uh in you know the the latter third to half of this movie and like coincidentally like that like that's what we need just as you know that's what these uh you know the these whatever you call them the the people in charge of the, the labor of these people the people in charge of setting these people free um so yeah i don't know i like that interplay
1: i did too um the moment that you're talking about was the moment i realized that i was watching like an incredibly good performance was when he suggests cutting down eight of the gigantic trees that are surrounding them so good to make a new and like the more and more physical that movie or the performance gets from there and you know it does uh the harder and harder the very end hits we can talk about that when we get to it but like i've wondered for a moment to what natural end his sort of over the top, almost insanity was going to like culminate. And it, it did by the end, I think, um, Harry.
2: Yeah, very much. So I, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, but while Charlie and I were watching this movie, uh, during that scene, I was like, holy shit, this is like some kind of a weird remake of the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And then I looked up and saw that, uh, um, Roy Scheider's character Jackie Scanlon was modeled after Fred Dobbs from Treasure of the Sierra oh my Madre. god! I I feel like like Roy Scheider's performance was definitely taking cues from that because like I'm not saying that to say that like I knew what I was talking about. I just think that that's really like clear in Scheider's performance, and I think it's like a really really brilliant performance because like like Cody, you said something really um, great early, which is that these characters mutate and evolve, like. Roy Scheider by the end of this movie is straight up, not the same man he was right. He's like fucking transformed by his ordeals. Like he just went through the heart of darkness. And like, that is true of each of the characters uh, until the moment that they die. Right. Is that like, these are characters who were deterministically created by uh, unfair circumstances outside of their control, arguably or their own greed or hubris or, um, circumstances internally, uh, I think that that the extent to which either of those things are true is up for debate. And there's a sense in this movie that they come from the same place anyway, right? Like the reason these men are so broken by circumstances and so sort of, um, if not greedy, then then suspicious and paranoid and hateful is in fact because of the sort of uh, worlds that they've had to inhabit for their entire lives. But they they change over the course of this movie in a couple of different ways until, like Jason, you had alluded to, Roy Scheider's character, Jackie Scanlon is undone by the end of this movie, right? Like he ceases to be human by that last scene, which is... Uh, In my opinion, one of the three scenes that I will never stop thinking about in this movie, Uh, the first of which is um, the rainy bridge scene, which is, I think, maybe one of the best set pieces I've ever seen in a movie ever, like bar none. Um, And then the second one is when they blow up the tree with some of the nitroglycerin, because I think that 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 uh, section is really um, thematically powerful and really sort of the climax focal point of of the movie in terms of what it's saying in a lot of ways and then finally the hallucinatory sequence at the end when Scheider's alone in the truck those are just three of the most like banging fucking scenes I've ever seen in a movie I'm so glad that I got to see them Um, but anyway yeah I think that um, the the performances in this movie they they evolve in a way that parallels how the characters evolve and change and that's a really distinctive and unique and unusual in many ways um form of acting i feel like and maybe that speaks to how it can feel a little bit overdone sometimes or it can feel unusual right like a lot of great performances can i guess um but i think that these are great performances nonetheless because of the way that they communicate that
1: yeah i will point us back yet again at mad max fury road since aaron brought it up but that like the the fact that roy scheider's character and a Apologize for forgetting the name already, but um, like he is softened for some reason or somehow by like the preceding two hundred miles, four hundred miles, I guess that he's had to travel to get to these to 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 get the explosives back to the site of of the explosion. Um, and Victor can't wait to get out of, of Paris when he at the beginning of the movie. Um, you know his friend is shot and his debts are like nipping at his heels, and then he's going to such extreme lengths as like a literal suicide mission to get back home. Uh, I like you're it just is very strongly like that is the core to me of of why this movie works is because for the first hour it's sort of set up in a very like i think it's almost almost you could almost call it like meta commentary on friedkin's style that like the first few scenes i thought man we're building up to a real Friedkin-like hit joint. We, you know, a man gets assassinated without uh, any kind of fanfare in a in a in a in a in a in a, in a, fe- in a foreign town, and then uh, you know a, a, another like a, a bombing goes off in Jerusalem. And you know, we, we flip between these different perspectives, and then they're going to all convene around something. But then it just takes a complete left turn, irrespective of their previous engagements and lives, into something that unifies them completely behind one. One thing, and I think the fact that like all these characters are played so straight into that, and that they are all so well, not all of them get the same amount of time to change. I guess we they don't all have the same twenty four hours a day, Uh, but they are all changed in some way or another by the end of of the film. Either they are literally dead, or they are, you know, uh, Roy Scheider has the moment where we're seeing him in the bar and he's. Uh, being approached or he's about to be approached by customs enforcement and he's just staring almost lustfully, but like sort of longingly at a pinup girl uh, behind the bar. And then by the end, he's like just gently dancing with, uh, with the woman from the village who is just sort of there minding her business. I I don't know. It's, it's, it's a big, a lot of big changes that occur. Yeah.
2: And, and she was a humanizing presence for the, the Frenchman.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's easy to forget all the interconnections between these things, but it's really fun to go back and think about them.
3: Oh, definitely um quick uh point for me about uh the that uh, you know I to you know I, I think about that um abrupt end to manzone and Kasim uh, I believe his name uh might be that that moment of them in the truck uh you know I am in some ways still rationalizing it you know the the fact that that was the point when they finally uh kind of connected um was it, this weird signifying point where okay and like they have they have reached the end of their their climb or their arc and it's like to me it simultaneously feels like you know uh the the fact that they're kind of deviated you know that like like i kind of propositioned earlier the fact that they like these men all have the same sort of muted personality the same purpose uh you know in this trajectory they find themselves on the f- the fact that they deviated from that just for a moment to like admire and kind of bond over this piece of jewelry you know live potential lives outside of this quest they're on and like that is the end they met it kind of felt si- like simultaneously like a condemnation but also like a weird blessing you know they were able to like transcend that just for a moment and like maybe that was enough um maybe I'm talking out of my ass but that's just kind of what I'm wrestling with but i do agree that that was Like, I don't know, a very poignant um, and very kind of nice and brutal send off. It's so many things. Oh,
2: it's such a brutal scene, man. It's so sad. And uh, from from a meta perspective, this is really silly, but they fucking die in the, the truck called Sorcerer which is the truck that I was sure was going to make it. It's like that. It was like, it was shaped like a fucking monster. It had like teeth and shit. It looked cool as hell. I was like, Oh, that's the sorcerer truck. They can't kill the sorcerer truck. And then they fucking killed the sorcerer truck. And that's right after they had made it through that impossible ordeal where they're like, they're trying to get off this bridge. And like that, that trial on the bridge, when the rain was coming down, it like goes so far as to become like, like, elemental like greek tragic right it was like like cacophonium the way that that like everything is falling apart around them they're in this hell of this rainforest and the river is flooding and overtaking this bridge the bridge is falling apart there are trees cascading down the river toward them cutting them up because they're smashing into them and they're yelling at each other like move the truck and the truck is flooding and going underwater and they have to keep this dynamite from exploding and it's just like it's it's like existential absurdity, right? It was like it was like Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill with the exception that they make it and then they die in a random horrible way moments later when they're finally sort of like band of brothers brought together by these terrible circumstances, right? It's such a great scene for that.
3: Uh yeah, my only contribution to that um is that man blown tires on a car or truck or any vehicle. They're like the fucking acl tear of car damage like they can seemingly happen You're basically out for the whole season dude yeah they can happen anytime uh they are an annoying and severe pain in the ass uh and in some cases they can kill you and yeah and your career you know derail you forever perpetually
1: let's talk about one specific particular thing uh that cody said earlier where like You said you called out the Willy Wonka structure, which makes a lot of sense to me in this movie. And to me that worked, but I want to talk about in what ways it did and didn't work. If we have time, just because like, it's such a specific, it's such like a, a thing specific to this movie for me is how it is very, very explicitly set in, in two different halves, I guess. And, uh, and how it like, it uses those to a very specific end to me, but it sounded like that didn't always work for you, Cody.
3: Um, yeah. And I think, I think by and large it, it did work. I'm very, I'm sympathetic to the idea that the, the, like the backloading of those stories, which kind of got elaborately more and more complex, you know, as they, as each of them went on, they kind of started with the most straightforward and then got, you know, more complicated from there, just as these men's lives got more complicated. Um, I'm sympathetic to why that wouldn't work. I think for the, the most part it did for me, but just the idea that like, and it's I think of Jaws as well um it's been a while since I've seen that movie but just like we get into the latter half and on the surface you know those backstories just do not matter any longer um there's definitely the option to kind of choose to read it as like these are the lives as you know as context for these men these are the realities that they are either, you know, they're, they might be yearning to get back to them someday as like long-term fringe goals in the back of their mind. Um, in the case of Kasim, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the, the guy who was a part of the, the band of uh, people who, uh, were, they handled that bombing in Jerusalem. And it's like, I don't know if that's necessarily the life, the life that he wants to go back to. That was kind of the, one of the lesser fleshed out characters, um, you know, agree to disagree maybe, but I don't know if that's necessarily life that he wants to get back to, but we know what type of person he is as a result of that. You know, these scenes in different ways, I, I'd like to think inform the, you know, what translates to the physicality of these men, the, the fact that we see Cassim uh, escaping, um, and kind of like, like acrobatically maneuvering around this city. And the fact that he's the one dangling off the rainy bridge, um, and you know, his determination to, to blow up this tree and kind of not give up on that. Like, that's just one example. Um, I think there's a, like definitely an argument to be made, um, for, you know, those, those beats feeding into what we see when these men by and large don't talk, uh, in general or, to each other. They're just physically emoting. Um, I don't know if you felt that way, Jason, you know, having come out of it, maybe feeling more positively uh, about it. Not to say I dislike that or the movie. Um, but maybe that does or doesn't sing for you.
1: It it does. And like, not to, not as counterpoint or anything, I think it's actually complimentary to your point is like, they are given all this backstory and the tragedy isn't just that w- that we know about them by the time that they, you know, three of the four of them, I guess all four of them kind of made an ignominious end in many ways. Uh, but like the fact that they think it's an escape from whatever they've been doing, it, they, they think it's like salvation. And when reality, it's just like, it's just like they're in a hydraulic press that's slowly squeezing them and they're, being Oh, what a good being, metaphor. <laughs> they're still being like chewed up and spit out and then crushed by the relentless march of capitalism. Right. Like, and I think that I don't know that any of them realize that or could realize that until Roy Scheider has his like schizophrenic break near the end. And, you know, is finally somewhat evened out in the final scene, but definitely like changed forever, softened and, you know, obviously haunted still. Uh, But like, not just that we've learned about these people, but that we like, we come to feel that same hope, that same like uh, sort of escape feeling like they're, they're through it now. And they're like, they've they've finished the hero's journey is over and you know even though they died at least they didn't die in vain and and it's sort of like they did they 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 did for american imperialist oil imperialism uh interests around the world i i think that is what like makes this movie sing to me is that like we do learn a lot about them and we know a lot about them and sometimes it's in vain uh but it is still like it still has purpose and it's uh it's like and the purpose is showing us how foolish anybody ever was to think that like this was a legitimate means of escape, that they were ever not under the thumb of somebody bigger and with more resources.
2: Yeah. Um, you've spoken a lot to the lens that I read this movie through. First of all, um, I should speak to your um, your first question about when the sort of act one didn't work for me, which is that I actually, I don't know that I thought that the characters were super well characterized. But maybe I was I was so familiar with the framing that they inhabit in the first half of this movie that I was looking for something that it wasn't meant to convey, which is I was looking for the real, like, striking differences in personality and getting to know these characters, which we don't really because they're immediately crushed when they go to um, the oil working village, right? Which is, of course, the point, right, is that um, they are reduced by the... Um, the rigors of their their capitalistic existence of of working for this oil company it it crushes them like you said like a hydraulic press into nothing but there was a while there where i was like what was the point of all of that backstory if these characters aren't really like they don't really seem to be the focus you know what i mean if if like we're not going to do something more with this but that's what i was saying earlier about how like i understood the movie differently because we see these characters who have reached the end of their rope in one way or another, but they have created connections. They have created selfhood, right? Self-determination. And they're forced to give that up in order to survive. And they are reduced into being literally faceless masses, right? Like they're so oppressed in this, um, this oil drilling facility that they all become the same meat essentially. Right. And like, they're so desperate to escape all of them, which by the way, the only reason they have to escape is because their wages are so low, right? That they live in perpetual wage slavery where it costs as much to live where they're living as it does as they make working there. Uh, And that's like intentional by the company. Right. And so then this company makes a a mistake and their profit starts literally exploding because their oil derrick blows up. Um, and, and these guys are given this golden opportunity to make enough money, which is like peanuts for this company to go and uh, put this fire out with this nitroglycerin. And along the way through their shared sort of um, trial, they humanize one another and they become people again, right? Like we can see that happen in real time. The second act of this movie, the first act of this movie is about these characters losing their humanity, being forced to lose their humanity by the, um, dehumanization of their work. And then the second act is about um uh, sorry. Uh this the second act is about them reestablishing their humanity through each other. And that seems to be the only way that that anybody can, right? And then the third act then becomes all the more horrific when, mm-hmm. like you said, Jason, these characters they lose one another and as these characters die um and and as the other characters lose their connections they also lose their humanity that they had just reestablished. to the point where roy scheider when he's on his own he loses everything that he had again and he becomes this wraith almost where he's hallucinating he keeps hearing this voice in his head talking to his former friend about i don't know where i'm going like i don't know what i'm doing um and he ends up in in this state of like hallucinating but he he comes away from that when he is successful with this newfound understanding of of how people work right and that was what that dance represented to me was this idea that like oh i like we're sort of you know, to, to take Friedkin's, uh, word for it. Like we all have to work together or we're all going to explode. That's like, we're all, we're not humans unless we're humans to and for one another. Um, which then of course makes the ending all the more tragic when, uh, Scheider's former friend who, who bought, brought him here in the first place, sells him down the river and sells him out to the people who were looking for him in the first place. Uh, which sort of brings home the point that there's no escaping from this, that like, as as long as this structure works the way it does, as long as these companies are doing this thing, they operate by destroying humanity and by forcing us to be at one another's throats. Right? It's a, it's a really great anti-capitalist um, message.
1: Yeah, it it disempowers from action. And it is the itself the product of that lack of action it's it's like very very illuminating of, of the sick cycle that it that it itself creates um I want to get into two like final big thoughts uh and then i'll I'll toss it to the rest of the team just for final thoughts but um so Aaron, you mentioned all of the sort of history and the symbolism of this movie not really landing uh, critically or or commercially back in the day, you know trounced by star wars and uh, what I'm looking at the box office right now, smoking the bandit close encounters Saturday night fever. It never really had a chance. Right. But uh, what you said earlier about how that the history of the movie kind of it invaded what you were thinking about the movie. How did it change what you felt about the, the movie itself? I didn't do the same research, so I didn't really have that on my mind, but I'm interested about how that would have affected how you were seeing the movie itself as you were watching.
0: Uh, how the, the history of the film impacted? How just,
1: yeah how just knowing like did you go in knowing sort of like contextually where it was placed and how it was thought of
0: yeah uh i'm gonna be i'm gonna be real honest i uh i knew that it had released around the same time as Star wars and that Friedkin was kind of personally upset and kind of a lot of people blamed that on why it failed Uh, i'm gonna be honest i thought this movie was about a sorcerer man uh i did not know (laughs) what this
1: movie yeah
0: i i'd I'd seen the the like the really amazing gotta be like maybe top 10 posters of all time the movie poster for this it's so fucking sick dude amazing that's wall art put it on the fucking wall frame that it's amazing uh it's all the it's from are you
1: are you referencing the one of the bridge scene Yes. Uh, okay. It's great, yeah.
0: Right. And so I thought like, okay, this is some weird, like maybe futuristic magic mix thing. I don't know what's going on with this. And then uh, a few days before I was like, Oh, let's look this up before I watch it. Um, I don't know how this, this has just escaped my cultural, uh, uh, memory here of like what I'd heard about this movie. Um, so I was surprised, I guess. Um, you know, I think this is a movie, uh, I think part of it is it is not a very audience friendly film and we've talked about it a little bit, but the, the first, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes of this movie, there's no English language at all. It's all uh, foreign languages, mostly French, I believe uh, at the very beginning. Um, You know, we've talked about the structure a little bit, like this is just a really challenging blockbuster movie. Um,
2: I think so, so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that was kind of one thing that impacted uh, my watch kind of as I was going I just kept believing like I honestly cannot believe that this was put out Uh but I guess I'm happy that it was
1: no me too uh, I think I it's interesting because the, the first part of this movie I would agree with you that it's like not a super audience friendly piece where it like it lingers and it's not clear like Harry was saying like things are pretty confusing in the beginning because you're seeing four different things and you're not sure who's important like by the time that uh, Martinez came back around sorry Kasim Martinez they're under assumed names when they're in the South America but uh, by the time that he came back around I had a hard time remembering who he was or what part he had played in the sort of lead up in the in the preamble um, but by the end of the movie I would say that it's like incredibly audience friendly I could imagine watching the last 56 minutes of this movie in a theater and just constantly like doing the oh and the and, and you screaming and sort of reacting to what's going that's on that's a screen. good point i and i and i loved that like again i was watching by myself in the morning so it wasn't quite the same experience but like i could see that and really enjoy uh how that how that might play out um in in a real world scenario but like i guess that leads to a good point my my last question is like was there ever a point to which wait I, i saw some hands up so i can i can throw it back before we lead to the next question so
2: go ahead aaron
0: I was just going to say that the I think part of it is that opening with the four different uh, kind of storylines where before the characters kind of converge. Um, That was not in the original Wages of Fear. The original Wages of Fear Mm -hmm. starts off in a a foreign village and the characters are already there. And then it it proceeds from there. I think the fact that the first uh, 30, 40 minutes of this movie are all kind of separate from the the kind of marked second half Uh, i think that's part of what adds to that feeling
2: especially like if you go in knowing what this movie is basically going to end up being about why are we in jerusalem why are we
0: that's what's going on
2: um i was just going to say it's it it ends up being i don't know if this resonates necessarily audience friendly wise but like it ends up by the end of the movie being such a clear like unified idea because the the central metaphor of the um oil company and and the destruction that it wreaks on the environment and on the socio-political environment of the um village and the country that they're in and the way that it wreaks havoc and destruction on these men's lives it like it really sings as a metaphor in a way that, that explains and codifies all of the behavior in this series, right down to like, there's a, there's a scene when the freedom fighters in the Hills, um, accost the main characters in the truck and they're going to kill them for supplies that they think they have. And you completely understand at a moment why they're doing that. And like even sympathize with them a little bit, right? Like, like, like these are these are the ostensible uh, sort of like antagonists in the sense that they're exactly in the way of our protagonists but the movie sets up a a political reality where not only is it understandable that they're doing those things but it also completely is sympathetic to the viewer at least it was to me and that recurs throughout right like in retroactively even you can understand sympathetically why all of these characters ended up where they did even though they're all criminals right and you know in in different ways right like there's a literal murderer there's a guy who is a, a terrorist bomber um who joins their team but like this this movie is making the point that all of those reactions are reactions to the system that is still destroying the world that is still literally digging up and destroying the world to so that it can um redistribute the wealth to the few, right? Like literally the metaphor in this movie is that there, is a, there was oil that was sucking wealth out of the ground. Now it's sucking fire out of the ground and it's destroying everything. And how do we react? Oh, we're going to pay these guys peanuts so that they can kill themselves to go put it out on our behalf, right? And it's not going to cost us anything except for a few lives. And what, like, what do these matter? These people aren't anyone. Right. And so, like, it's really interesting that, like, I think that this movie makes more sense the more you watch it, because every single time uh, a character's characterization comes to light, it makes more sense of the entire sort of polemic idea of what this movie is trying to say. Um, and it, it sings so well with, as we understand that we understand what's happening to these men. And we even understand the movie's point about how like these men coming to suffer in the same way and work towards something together is how they come to rehumanize one another. And like, that's just such a brilliant, like tight, Messaging that that's not contradictory at all, even though it feels so challenging in the beginning, because it has to write that into the universe that it's establishing, right? And that's that's fascinating to me.
1: The last thing that I'll ask, and it's it leads from there, is like around the time when um, Martinez and Victor are both going through, are, are finishing up their their time on the on the bridge, and it's snapped and stuff. Around that time is when I just started to almost I was just numb to the stress and tension of this movie. Uh, I, I still was enjoying it, but I wasn't like by the same, you know, or earlier in the film with the first bridge scene or, you know, any of the other set pieces that come before that I was very much in and, you know, sort of edge of my seat type of thing. But by that time I had sort of almost completely numbed to it. And I'm wondering if that happened to anybody else or if it was just thrilling throughout to the last minute uh, because that like this movie lives and dies for me on that, on the feeling of that, of that stress. And eventually it almost became too much for me. Anybody else have that feeling by the end?
2: I was exhausted. Right. I was like, I was wrung out. I I felt like Roy Scheider at the end of this movie where like, he is, he is like, he looks like he's on his deathbed. Right. Where like, they keep telling him like, Oh, you did a great job. You're a great driver. And he's saying like, not anymore. And it's like, he's not human anymore. It's like, he like the, the stress that he endured was so great that it, it like, it like hollowed him out. And I felt that way too, right? It's like, by the time Scheider is hallucinating down there in the valley, it's like, Jesus, like I'm, I'm going to (laughs) die. It's, it's like, it's over. I'm, (laughs) I'm so exhausted by this. I can't even imagine.
3: Right. Uh, Totally. I, I don't know if I was necessarily numb in the same way. Um, Just from my own experience in viewing this film, the, the thrills uh, I guess like within each set piece and like moving from set piece to set piece were like different enough where I, I felt like I was reacting different. Like the, the, the rainy bridge sequences were I got, they got a different reaction from me than like the sequence where they're rigging the the tree to explode. Like that is maybe where it, it peaked for me because it's uh like, Like contrast to the the rainy bridges, which were very like full of noise, the tree explosion was uh, like pretty well silent in comparison. Um, And there was a lot of like cross cutting between like the the other men rolling their trucks back and uh, Kasim, I believe, who is who is rigging the explosion in the first place. There was a moment where he pierces the box. And it's like immediately after the piercing that they cut back to like a a truck zooming back. That was like what, like how I described earlier, where it's like not quite a jump scare, but it's just like really good, smart editing. Um, That is like maybe like the, if I had to pick a singular point where the thrills peaked for me, obviously I was still well engaged through the rest of the movie. But I think that specifically is the point where I was like, like I am most on edge right now. Probably.
0: Friedkin also doesn't show the end of the the bridge sequence in the rain. He he cuts away before the truck gets over. Yeah, yeah, later, yeah. that's right. Okay, yep. Okay, but he, it's like a very anti uh, way that you you'd shoot a set piece like that, where he's like, you're not even getting the relief at the end of this. Like we're we're just waiting mm-hmm. attention.
1: And that led me to when they showed up at the at the fallen tree after. uh, Ever Roy and, and the killer are, are trying to confront it. I thought that they had lost their truck. I thought that it had just fallen down the river and not exploded or something. Like that level of uncertainty. I thought they had just like wandered their way through the woods. I don't know. It, it was like really, really good and really kept me on my toes throughout the whole thing.
2: Um Charlie watched this with me. Shout outs to Charlie. She decided early this morning that she didn't want to come on the pod. That's fine. It's fine. I'm not mad about it. Um, But she did say that uh, she wondered if the reason why, especially the first act does such a good job of, of establishing how fucking gruesome this movie is going to be, because it's like, this is a fucking gory movie. Like you see a guy uh, content warning for suicide. You see a guy, kill himself and you see the exit wound right and like the the Roy Scheider um Jackie Scanlon car chase scene it is very very gory by the end of it and that persists throughout this movie like this is a it's a bloody movie It, in, in a lot of ways it feels like a horror movie like literally right both in terms of its obsession with bodies and in terms of what it shows and doesn't show and like you said Cody there's like there's almost horror editing to this and Friedkin was sort of a horror. Um, Make, like filmmaker and so it makes a lot of sense but yeah that's just like one other thing that really works for me about this movie is that it like it feels different from a lot of like what you would traditionally think of as blockbusters because it's so gritty right like and like legitimately like gritty and like slimy and um and and like grimy I guess um and Aaron you brought that up a little bit but like even in the editing it feels that way
3: definitely um slimy is such a good descriptor for that um and it's easy yeah to forget that uh friedkin uh directs horror he directed one of the best horror films of all time uh that i, I love the exorcist and that's even something that i forget uh from time to time that he made that movie
2: i think that right. we've um are we, we've reached our destination here uh i think we are i think it's that we've it's been a long and perilous as far as they can go I like the most idea of us
0: that most of these podcasts are just were just road trips to get to the real destination, which is Cody giving us his notice.
2: That's right. Uh, Every one time. more time, and I I'll think he, the real time. destination is that <gasps> we have finally reached Cody's <gasps> notice. Wow. That wow. Was Jason, awful. What, that was What bad. happened? Listen, Listen fuck Let's
1: up. do it again. 100%, 100% in dude, sync on it. my end.
2: <sighs> all right, we're going <gasps> to do it one more time. <gasps>
3: Cody's notice. Cody's we did it. Nailed it. Yep, baby. I want I want a super cut of all of the big inhales uh, that you boys took. Uh, just on this episode alone, we'll have at least like six or seven. <gasps> um, you can use that one too if you I can, like. Um, I can show you how to use Audacity. Oh, cool. That would be nice. Um, in the meantime, though, uh, thank you as always for that warm welcome. Uh, this segment today was originally going to be a completely different thing and a more interactive thing at that. Uh, But due to reasons I'll get into, it instead morphed into this alternative, but still uh, tangentially similar thing. Um, So I will just jump in and see how this goes. Uh, So during my usual uh, cursory research pre-recording on wikipedia.org, I saw that Sorcerer's Page introduced it as, uh, quote-unquote, a 1977 American adventure drama neo-noir thriller film. Uh, which is an absurd way to describe any movie uh, in an elevator pitch format. Uh, and I thought to myself in a sarcastic sort of inner monologue, oh, wow, this movie sounds one of a kind. Um, but then I thought, well, if this is how the movie is labeled here on Wikipedia, I wonder how it's labeled uh, elsewhere. And so naturally I went to Letterboxd and I was like, oh, I could you know map out other movies that categorically share those genres. And maybe that'll turn into like, A nice, you know, guessing gamer or something for the fellas. You know, I'm always looking out for the fellas. Um, So I found that on Letterboxd Sorcerer is listed as just adventure and thriller. And I thought, okay, that's way more reasonable probably and much more manageable for searching purposes. And now Letterbox doesn't have a, a great way to filter multiple genres at once. So I just pulled up thrillers and went through those movies one by one, starting with the most popular ones, which in retrospect, I realized was a mistake uh, because there are roughly twice as many texts for thrillers as there are for adventure films. So oops on my part. Um, and as I went along, I came to realize just how finicky the idea of genre is. Not that it was a revelation to me or to you guys or to anybody who may be listening to this. I think we've all seen examples of how... Uh, subjective a genre uh, descriptor can be and how it can be twisted to fit uh, a certain description. And this realization sort of mounted more as I kept coming up with duds in my search. Um, Like many movies were very close to matching um, and it was generally additional genre tags that prevented an exact match of those two. Um, So like, for example, Raiders of the Lost Ark is listed as action adventure. And then building off that, most of the James Bond movies and Mission Impossible movies are listed as action adventure thriller. Jurassic World then is listed as, uh, excuse me, action, adventure, thriller, sci-fi. And then we get into previous episode, the fifth fifth element, um, action, adventure, thriller, sci-fi and fantasy and so on. You begin to get an idea of like what uh, the feeders for letterbox genres consider a certain type of movie and kind of can start to guess where things will fall. Um, And there were obviously exceptions, but in general, the trends seem to be usage of more genre tags with newer releases and franchises that are maybe like more recent and still ongoing. Um, even things that like may be experiencing a critical reappraisal or like cult status, something like clue stood out to me, which is listed as comedy, thriller, mystery, crime, which is like, <laughs> some of those are a stretch, right? None of them are necessarily wrong, uh, but at most you need, uh, quote unquote, need half of those. And that's how it felt for a lot of them as well. I thought I had National Treasures, a safety net for this, um, as I kept going. Uh, but even that has mystery, adventure, action, thriller, which, you know, come on. Um, Furious 7, on the other side, you know, is an exception to that rule. That is a recent franchise movie that is just listed as action, thriller, baby, short and sweet. Um, really nice. And I, you know, it was a relief to see that after you know not having a movie with fewer than three or four tags. Um, and then like Hitchcock movie These were examples of kind of the other side pretty concise in in their genre tags north by northwest is listed as mystery thriller um when by contemporary standards it could also be like adventure or maybe even romance um you get into shit like frozen 2 which is uh, a sequel in a disney franchise that has labels of fantasy adventure family comedy animation uh and it doesn't help that family and animation have their own genre tags here that is uh kind of horseshit um but also what do i know um and then you have shit like uh the Maze Runner, which I don't know, I barely have heard of. It's class classified as science fiction, mystery, action, thriller. I think it's based.
2: It's a that. it's a YA series, right?
3: Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And yeah. you know, to that point, it's it's like you know, maybe those tags are valid. I don't know. I've never seen any of those movies. It's a franchise for for like yeah, like like you guys said, young young adults, teenagers. A franchise for babies, <laughs> like for baby town frolics over here, uh, and it's like you know, it seems to be leaving like the cultural zeitgeist, our collective consciousness. Um, Again, I'm barely not a young adult. So also I don't know anything, but I thought, you know, those movies made bank. Uh, within those specific demographics, you know, a lot of kids went to those movies, a lot of babies. And so I was like, maybe there's something there. And so in the idea of like following the money, I was like, okay, where, where do the tags from Letterboxd feed in from? Um, uh, they come from the movie database. A lot of the information on Letterboxd, uh, comes from there. I guess, shout outs to Letterboxd and the movie database. Why not? Um, it's framed on its website as being community built, and you know I know, for example, community members can create pages for films that don't already have them, and those other areas of the site, uh, those and other areas of the site, rather seem to be like quality checked in some way. So that's all fine. It didn't really affect my wondering if overflagging genres is maybe like a way to market a given movie more widely, or like for example, having a franchise movie show up in more genre lists or something across like streaming services. And uh, I don't know, it, it starts unraveling a little bit. Apologies <laughs> if this doesn't land uh, in a moment where I felt like shooting my shot a little. I was like, OK, where does the movie database breadcrumb trail lead us? Uh, and the answer is less nefarious than I was hoping for. But it's interesting enough. The movie database is owned by a company called Fan TV, which is owned by the TiVo Corporation. Um, and then that's just owned by Xperia, uh, Xperia. Xperi whatever corporation was just, I don't know. I know nothing about it. It seems like a nothing umbrella holding company. Uh, but one of TiVo's main functions is to essentially corral metadata and provide analytics driven media and platform recommendations for quote unquote, the video industry. So maybe there's something to all this in that everything is owned by someone and our tastes and preferences are not independent from the preferences of corporations. Um, bringing this Holy back. Shit, from,
2: you're bringing it around.
3: I'm bringing I it, it, it around bringing it around town uh my original intent was to find genre matches for sorcerer um as i initially said 28 minutes ago Uh, it was a while ago and to a point i was like please just give me one i'm not finding anything i will take one fucking movie whose genre (laughs) those um i went through hundreds of movies and i eventually found an entry with those genres uh do you all want to know the most popular movie on Letterboxd whose genre tags are verbatim adventure and thriller um do any of you have a guess as to what that might be
1: Hmm. how do you rank these guesses do, like the person who gets the year closest
3: wins. uh i'm trying to turn it, this into a it, competition <laughs> um sure yeah i mean if if yeah if we can go by release year. um if any of you get it i think you would just win you know the the you know the year 2020 but okay if if anybody has a guess adventure and thriller it's both just adventure it's, and thriller
2: it's both adventure and thriller and only
3: adventure and thriller only adventure and thriller the most okay. the most logged movie on letterboxd with those tags
1: oh god mm. see i was gonna say uh, silence of the lambs before the only tags came in right i know that's gotta have horror as well
0: I'm going yeah i'm warrior. pretty sure it did. road warrior that's my guess mm. road warrior's your guess
1: mm, i'll say beyond road, road
0: Warrior, but that's adventure thriller I just try to think what's a movie kind of like. That's a No, that's a good guess. Thank you. It's clearly not it from Cody's uh, reaction, but.
3: Well, I don't know. I only have one type of reaction and it's usually dismissive to, to everything. So I think you're still in the clear. Any other any other guesses out there?
2: Jason, you guess Beyond Thunderdome?
3: I guess Beyond Thunderdome because I have no oh, I didn't real guess. Sorry. That's okay, sort that's of okay.
2: a price is right fucking. Yeah, of
3: course. Yep, Our, yep. Uh,
2: if it's any Listen, of the other Mad Maxes, that's how it, I win. It would be. It would be Fury Road, if anything, also, by the way. I, I 100% think that Fury Road has yep, been logged Fury on Letterboxd more than. Um, I'm not going to go Fury Road. I'm not a fucking coward. Oh,
3: um,
2: no. I'm going to go with uh, Casino Royale.
3: Casino Royale. Um, so. Uh none of those are correct. All of those are great guesses. Oh. Um I think all of those are prob- uh I, I came across all of those uh at some point. The the most popular movie on Letterboxd whose genre tags are verbatim adventure and thriller. Maybe it's a trick question, it's sorcerer. Uh <laughs> none of the Aww. hundreds before it and none of what? the couple hundred following it. It is the only movie within like hundreds and hundreds of movie entries on letterbox that has only the tags adventure and thriller i didn't Um,
0: know could do a trick question i was not aware for Cody's. well did he
3: did
1: he use the word other like what other movie or did he just say what movie because
3: yeah i'll have to go back and check that i never did i got i got my ass all right all right all right all right Um, so but if, but if you if,
2: if you if you said something that even sounds like other Cody, we're coming for your ass. Fair enough,
3: I've been tricked. Carry on, my narcissist. Uh, t- t- Holy shit! Um, pretty good. Order, to 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 tie a bow on this and to get us the fuck out of here. Um, in that way. I guess my initial query was answered. Sorcerer is in fact very unique uh, in its genre labels, right? Um, at least to this one vessel and in a way that maybe I wasn't expecting. Um, I suppose a better conclusion to all this would be genres are made up and they ultimately don't matter. My hunch is that as a tool in our current reality, uh, the most common use for genres is exploiting and manipulating consumers of not just media, but also pretty much anything Um uh, to bring in sports for a second, because this uh, podcast could be a little bit longer um, and sports is how I relate to most things. I know I've made this comparison in different discussions off the pod, but modern NBA basketball is inspir- experiencing a sort of transition to something that's referred to as positionless basketball in that you don't have a point guard or a small forward or a center on the court. Rather, you have a group of players whose wide variety of abilities and traits overlap into multiple different positions so that there's flexibility and hopefully you get a be better end results you know at the end of it all than you would have otherwise maybe there's some benefit to instead of itemizing what any one movie brings to the table genre wise just recognizing and accepting the fact that uh films are and can be many different things and may we may be better off leaving them to be genreless, uh you know something like that um float that into the zeitgeist but yeah, anyway that concludes my whatever the hell that was
2: that was Cody's Nodies, Cody. Woo! You can oh, yeah, walk with your, with your Cody and your notie
3: held high. I've I've forgotten so much uh, in the time it took to vomit all of that out. Um, Hold I'll on to,
1: to your Nodies, everybody. You're
2: just, you're just genres now. You're just the internet movie database. <laughs> what oh. the oil company did to the men in Sorcerer, IMDB has done to Cody.
3: Flat and I killed. Very past broken. In a cool, fun way.
1: In a cool, fun way that can still hang out and chill. Uh, thank you very much for listening to TriLove. This has been our episode about Sorcerer. Uh, you can buy tickets to any other Trilon showing from this date out at Trilon.org. And if you're not going to see the movie there, which we understand, you can see it at home, but try to give to the Trilon when you can. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff there uh, and a lot of new offerings, including the Trilon, I forget, it's Trilon Club that was just announced. I need to yeah. help.
2: The Trilon Club. Trilon Club. I believe I'm member number six. I believe Cody, are you member number four?
3: Uh, That sounds right. We are two spaces apart. Um, Single digits, though, for sure. Wow. Hell yeah! So if you want to
2: be like the cool guys, me and Cody, the cool guys, uh, then you should join the Trilon Club because it's uh, it's cool.
1: It's a great way to support the Trilon in a time when things are tough for everyone. Uh, But if you should decide. And it is cool. If you, um, if you should decide to go to the Trilon or anywhere else to watch a movie, uh, go ahead and put on a mask before going anywhere. Uh, do what you can. The weather is going to make it really hard to not propagate uh, a deadly virus, and it makes everything harder for everybody if you don't. So uh, wear your damn mask uh, if and when you go out, but if you're not going to, just watch the movie at home and toss the on some money for putting it on. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. You can find our podcast at Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema.
3: Bum, 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 sorcerer. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH.
2: Uh, I'm Harry. You can find me at Shitaki Harry. If you do go to the Trylon, uh, again, wear a mask. Yeah. And if they still have a Sorcerer poster uh, for sale, uh, all of the posters at the Trylon are on sale. Not many people maybe know that, but they are. Um, if you could buy it for me and, and mail it to me, um, that would be so swell. I would really appreciate that. Um, I don't have a lot of space to put it up, so I won't be able to put it up right away, but I like that poster a whole bunch and, um, I would really appreciate it. So thank you. Um, our listeners for that.
1: I, Um, I will pay you $5 above whatever Harry's paying you and I have wall space for it. So
2: don't, don't do that. Don't give it to Jason. He doesn't need it. Uh, I need it. So get in touch. My DMS are, I think open. Uh, happy Thanksgiving.
0: Uh I am Aaron and you can find me on Twitter at @rbplease.
3: I just have one thing to ask. May I have this dance?